Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Borak, and today I flew, well, not today, but today I'm in Stockholm. I flew all the way out from across the pond, New York to Stockholm, just to do this interview with up-and-coming pro. He's, uh, he's played uh, college tennis at uh, LSU and uh, UC Santa Barbara. He kicked my ass when we played tennis earlier. And uh, he's out there grinding on tour, playing uh, ITFs and trying to make it. He's got a YouTube channel, he's got Instagram, he's got social media. But without further ado, I would like to introduce Simon Freund. Thank you, thank you. Good to be here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time uh, to do this. The first thing I usually like to ask my guests is how did you start playing tennis? Well, it was actually like when I was young, I, I kind of went to, to kindergarten, I think it is, or daycare. Uh, and uh, to get there, we walked past the tennis court. And then uh, as my parents were working later sometimes, it just kind of ended up that after my daycare kind of closed, they ended up just kind of dropping me off at the tennis court and I would hang out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just watch people play tennis. And I guess it just developed from there. Were your parents tennis players? No, nothing. Really? Yeah. But to be honest, I think I was very lucky, though, in the sense that I kind of grew up in uh, a very cute little suburb there that had a, a tennis club right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. So it was a very familiar kind of setting to it. And they were very friendly. Uh, a few of them, you know, came to my uh, graduation, for example, a couple of years back. And yeah. At what point in your career did you really start to take tennis seriously? And, you know, how did you progress from you know, being dropped off at the tennis courts by your parents to competing on the national and international level? Well, I, I guess as a junior, I started doing well, like like locally, and then I started competing more and more like nationally. And then I, I think from a pretty early age, having some relatives in the US, I, I was always kind of intrigued by college tennis. So I guess that was kind of a big goal for me to, to try to make it to college tennis. And, and because of that, and, and for recruiting aspects and different things, I, I guess I started to kind of progress into play more internationally. How old were you when you started that? International tennis? or uh, Let's start with a national level first. Well, I, I think that was probably from like age of 10, 11. Okay, so pretty early on. Yeah, like we had, the, I, as far as I can recall, we have a very big like junior tournament from 11s, uh, 11, 13 and 15s. And... Uh, a lot of very like famous I, I think it's the biggest junior tournament in Sweden and uh, I, I think I ended up winning it like locally in Stockholm when I was 11 mm-hmm. and then all the winners from all the different regions kind of go to the big national circuit and yeah. I guess that was kind of the stepping stone to, to competing more and more nationally and, and things like that and then when was the first time you played a tournament an international tournament um, do you remember your first match I don't exactly remember, but I'm pretty sure it was when I was like 14 or something. I played one of these like Tennis Europe tournaments. I think I played it in Denmark mm-hmm. uh, or so. Can't remember how it went, but I do recall that at that tournament, they had a mini tennis tournament that I won. Mm-hmm. So you kind of had like a, for fun, like a touch tennis tournament. Mm. And I took that one down at least. What was the, what was the college recruitment like for you coming from... Uh, obviously different country applying to American universities getting in contact with these coaches um, and then also the 
decision-making process to choose one school over another, even though maybe you visited them, maybe you didn't, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure, you know, to walk us through that. I mean, it was a very big uh, kind of, uh... <laughs> sorry, no, I guess it was a big process and I didn't really have any experience with it uh, from coming from Sweden, as you say, I mean, it is a big kind of, I don't know, Sweden and the US tennis, which is kind of a big thing. And then I, I guess with the whole recruiting process, I, I started doing better internationally when I was like 16, 17. And then I started to get a lot of schools that was reaching out. And obviously they were very helpful, like giving me tips what I should make sure to do with SAT and like the TOEFL test and those kind of things. And uh, I ended up taking a recruiting trip to LSU. So I was there for a few days, kind of got the feel for it, ended up signing with them. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a lot of things to try to figure out and navigate through, but I do actually recall like I, I got a good amount of help from the school and their like academic advisors and things were kind of helping me out. What was it like when you first uh, arrived at uh, at LSU? I mean, I actually have a pretty, I guess, kind of a, a funny story when I came to LSU. So I came in the in the fall, twenty fourteen, and uh, I don't know if you you've been to Louisiana. I've never been in like the deep south, but it, it's very hot uh, in the fall. And I remember I came in like in August or something, and uh, pretty much straight away I was into like the preseason kind of workouts and practices. And I remember I started off, I had a meeting with the coaches, and uh, <laughs> it was kind of a misunderstanding, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident I, I did it correctly, but we rescheduled and like had a different time and everything was set. And then it ended up like me missing the meeting or so. And so then obviously it was like punishment workouts. <laughs> and then it was like I had to do these uh, Versa Climber. If you heard of that, it's like a Versa Climber. It's like a fitness thing. Okay. And I had to go on that one and it was like pretty brutal. And I, I ended up doing a full body cramp <laughs> of it. I remember like very vividly, I, I, yeah, like on the second, I had to do three sets. On the second set, I remember the fitness coach telling me like, whatever you do, don't lean on anything. And I remember after the second set, I was so exhausted. I was like, like what's gonna happen if I lean on something? So I leaned on um, like a bench press board or something and just like stuck up, full body cramp, oh, man. just fell backwards. I got carried to the ice bath, I think, or to the training room that was next door. Oh my God. And then also, yeah, with the tennis, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I ended up getting like my, this is, this is all in my first two weeks at LSU. So at a tennis practice, I had to do uh, two court suicides. I don't know, 35, 38 degrees, humid as shit. <laughs> yeah, all super humid, I bet, in Louisiana. Yeah, and I remember I was running, and then I had to do 30 of those, and after like 17, I actually ended up like fainting. <laughs> and then that was it for the day, and then the next day we had practice again, and then like right after practice finished, they were like, all right, get, up, get back on the line, Simon. And like I still had to finish it, so I had to start over from zero. Oh had to make goodness. it the next day uh, but luckily for me it was a little like cloudy and stuff so it wasn't as warm uh -huh. and I made it through that day so I think it was more like the first day I got more of a heat stroke kind of thing mm -hmm. but it was a big uh, big change but, but going back to your question though like the main kind of difference though is probably the cultural wise like I come from Sweden obviously where we have a thing called like Jantelagen I don't know if you ever heard of it Definitely not. <laughs> uh, so it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like an unwritten rule in the Swedish society that you like, you can't be like better than someone. Like you have to be very, uh, what do you say? Like, 
modest Mod- humble yeah very humble uh, don't be cocky yeah it's like even if you are like the best and someone like gives you credit for it you're kind of like brought up to to be like very humble in it, i guess i want to call bullshit on that because when i think of you think Swedish- of <laughs> But he's kind of a outside of the norm, I guess. For it. but it's pretty cool. If you guys want to Google up, like Google up Yantelog with a J, uh-huh. and give you a little more detailed explanation of it. But I think it's just like more natural in the, the whole society. But and then I go to the deep south, where I would say it's almost like the complete opposite. Like yeah. they're very much in your face. They're very confident, and like I I thought it was a great experience for me, like like learning wise and, and things, but. It was a bit of a culture shock coming there mm-hmm. uh, the first couple couple days, and uh, but I really enjoyed it for sure. It's funny. I had a I have a friend who she played. She's from Belarus, and she was playing like a professional tennis, and then she got recruited to American University. And this is like early two thousands or so, I would say, um, where there wasn't like the the same internet and media that we have today. And so all she knew about America was what she saw on TV. Okay. And she's like, oh, it's this beautiful, grand place. And so she got recruited to play. And she's like, oh, I'm going to America. I'm going to play college tennis. Yeah. And uh, she got to, she got recruited by a college in Kentucky. And she's like, what the f- What did I get myself yeah. into? She ended up sticking out all four years and finishing her degree there. Yeah. And credit to her because that is... That must have been uh, extremely difficult. Also, you know, coming from Belarus, like Eastern Europe, also yeah. like a completely different uh, culture. Yeah, then, for sure. Uh, did you did you felt that way at all? Like, I mean, was, I I did go on a recruiting trip there. Ah, uh, so yeah. So, so I mean, I, I did kind of have, have like an experience of it, but I must say, obviously, you have like I th- I think this is for most uh, kind of uh, places in the south that like Baton Rouge, it's it's not the nicest place but then the college itself is unbelievable like mm-hmm. the facility and everything the com- like I don't know the respect LSU has in the community is like unmatched LSU is a big hitting school yeah so, so I think that was kind of my big selling point for me not necessarily like the life outside of the college because I pretty much lived in a college like college town obviously and everything there mm-hmm. so I guess it's kind of a give and take and I'm, I'm assuming it's very similar like we, we played against like University of Kentucky and, and all the SEC schools and it was very similar like no matter where we went it was kind of like in the bus ride there you kind of go through the middle of nowhere in a sense and then all of a sudden you pop up with this like amazing campus mm-hmm. like huge facilities brand like everything is just I don't know <laughs> it's pretty cool in a way do you think that uh, American universities have the potential to take advantage of their facilities to breed more professional tennis players not just you know no for, for sure I, I think we're seeing a big wave of that coming right now certainly and I, I think before it was kind of a uh, presumption I guess for a lot of people that if you went to college you kind of give up on your pro career but as tennis especially has, has gotten so much more physical it takes a lot more time for people to develop and uh, I really think it's shown out the past couple of years that that college is a great stepping stone or gateway to professional circuit. Like you have so many players coming out of college tennis right now. I mean, for example, uh, Cameron Nori. Cameron Nori. Yeah. Is ben Shelton. Yeah. I mean, all those guys, like McKenzie McDonald, all the previous, like you have John Isner, like the old guard, if you want to say. And, mm-hmm. But 
I just really see that it's becoming broader and broader. Like there's just more and more players coming out of college tennis, and mm-hmm. and obviously if you're too good, you can go pro after a year or so. But I really think unless you're <laughs> like the next uh, Alcaraz I, I think you should at least consider college tennis for mm-hmm. sure as a stepping stone so uh, you you transferred from LSU to uh, UC Santa Barbara right yeah um, what what inspired that transfer and then uh, what did you take away from uh, you know playing for Santa Barbara well so when it comes to the transfer there was a lot of different factors to it uh, I did get along great with the team and, and the coaches and everything but I did kind of struggle with my tennis and uh, I guess I got into a little bit of a maybe lost a little bit of confidence kind of needed a fresh start I wasn't really sure if I was going to go pro anymore and that was kind of always my dream you know being a kid but then my sophomore year and everything I, I started to kind of change my priorities a little bit and LSU was not the best academic school and I started thinking more about like life after tennis mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden when tennis like I started to think more in the the terms of my tennis career kind of finishing after my college career so uh, then my priorities were more like maybe a better academic school maybe a more of a school where I could see my or more of an area where I could see myself living after college mm-hmm. which as much as I like Baton Rouge I, I had a hard time kind of like seeing myself live there mm-hmm. so naturally for me one of my targets I guess as I was transferring was I wanted to go to the west coast have a little bit of family as well like in in California so I as I transferred from LSU I was really trying to go into one of the UC schools if you know like like UCLA UC Irvine UC Berkeley and yeah and uh, yeah ended up at UC Santa Barbara how uh, did you start for them as well yeah so throughout pretty much my whole time at at UCSB I played three singles and like one and two doubles most Mm -hmm. of the time and it was just a very different it's very hard for me to say like that one is better than the other but it was just a very different style of coaching and uh, I do personally believe though uh, that when it comes to like Santa Barbara because with the recruitment process they didn't necessarily have the same kind of muscle compared to like a big SEC school Mm -hmm. and I think that kind of makes the coaches be more coaches Uh, like they have to really I don't, know, I don't know how to explain it, but I think you know what I mean, though. But just more of, like, help develop people's games. Mm-hmm. But I think more in the South is more of, like, or a big SEC schools that they come in there and they're really, really good tennis players. And it's more about, like, helping them more, like, uh, strength-wise or, like, fitness-wise and those kind of things. While as a UCSB, I feel like it's more about, like, actually developing their tennis game more. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's more, like, all-around coaching, I would say, there. Kind of like the you would you say it's like the balance between like performance and and potential, yeah. Where LSU is like more focused on performance and a yeah. place like UC, uh, SB yeah, yeah, is um, you know, what do you say performance and uh, potential? Yeah, you know, like for sure, you know, trying to tap into that, you know, tap into uh, the skill of each each of the players and uh, not looking directly at where you are. But where you could be, yeah, with the sure. right co- with the right coaching and you know, yeah, because I think the SEC kind of has a bit of the luxury that they can get a lot of players who already are at a very high level, and then it just comes down to more of like helping them perform mm-hmm. at the level as you mentioned, 
while as, as UCSB, you know, they, they, if you, to be honest, like they get more of the second tier players, but then it's more about finding the second tier players that they can, that they see a lot of potential in. And then mm-hmm. it comes down to more of like their coaching abilities, how to kind of uh, polarize that game, or I don't know how you call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I was at UCSB, they actually had a really great history of, of doing really well with transfers. So, for example, like Morgan Mays was there before me, I uh, don't know, but he, he was at Wake Forest. Mm-hmm. Didn't really do great at Wake Forest, but he came to UCSB and his kind of career and then the results just exploded there. Mm-hmm. Same thing with me. I, I felt like I was at LSU and I had a very average performance at LSU, but I came to UCSB. I feel like I managed to, to really, ex- like, I don't know, took a different path. Mm-hmm. They were much better there. And then... Uh, yeah, just a lot of players there. I think they have kind of a history with transfers. Another guy that came a year after me, transferred from uh, University of Florida, didn't really start there, and then within two years he was top ten in the country, for wow. example. So I mean, yeah. What, <laughs> like, what was the name of the coach? Uh, so when I was there, the head coach was Marty Davis. Mm-hmm. He's retired now, and uh, the assistant coach when I was there was Blake Moore, and he's taken over the program now. So he's the head coach there. And uh, I worked, I would say, mostly with Blake uh, throughout my time there. Obviously, Marty was there, but, uh, well, I guess I worked with both, but I would say Blake was the main kind of guy that I was working with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he's taking over the program now, and I think he's doing great uh, so far. He's, I think it's his second year now. What does it take for a coach to, to, pull, to extract these kinds of things out of high-performance players? Because if you look at, like, more... A beginner recreational you know a little bit lower on the spectrum in, in terms of skill yeah um, there's like plenty of technical things that need to be changed you know a little, a little bit maybe like strategy or tactics that you know that can be approached I, I'd um, say a, a very big factor is actually that uh, when I was at, at LSU I would think there was more of kind of like a set standard how to perform uh, more like a mental aspect that that kind of focus of it and you didn't necessarily go into the details as much of every player because everybody usually had such a good and solid ground to stand on mm-hmm. uh, from being very good players, especially from like juniors and stuff. But I think more at UCSB, what they did very well there, and I think they might be like unmatched, at least from my experience with coaches, was they were so good at working with you individually, kind of like tapping into how you want to play tennis, how, how, like what, what your strengths, what your weakness, how we can work together with that. Whereas uh, I would say at LSU, they kind of trusted you to kind of know your strength and abilities. So what did they do at uh, you know at, at Santa Barbara to help you uh, find that next gear? You know, was it a technical? Was it physical? Was it mental? Like what what did the coach so, tell so you? So that's what. So it's very hard for me to say like something specific because that's what I think they did such a good job of was kind of boiling it down to your needs and kind of finding where you're at. Obviously, Blake, uh, for example, and Marty as well, but especially Blake that I worked with mainly was, uh, yeah, he, he just kind of like figured me out. And, and I think that was a big key because uh, me coming from Sweden, as we talked about, like with the culture shock, I mean, it is very different. And so obviously the way I would respond to coaching wouldn't necessarily be the same as the, if you say the average guy from Texas, for mm-hmm. example, kind of with their upbringing. And so I think that was a little bit of a clash or just maybe too extreme of a change for me how that worked and I think Blake especially did a very good job of kind of like noticing that and kind of 
understanding how to coach me mm-hmm. in a way and and uh i think also something that gave me a lot of trust to him was just noticing how much he he cared about players and and such beyond their tennis and uh because i mean i i can vouch for it. there were so many times there was like my, my senior year i was a, a captain on the team and we had a couple we had a lot of freshmen actually i think we were four or five freshmen on a team of of nine or ten so we had a very young team and you know as you come into college i mean it's very new you know with the i mean homework and all the things you have to take care of that maybe you don't have (laughs) structured if you haven't lived on your own before Mm -hmm. so it was a lot of work with that and i remember like blake would take extra time of like sitting there tutoring people in like history or or like (laughs) political science or whatever and uh like just really going above and beyond and I, I know a lot of graduates that he helped like set them up with job interviews and all kinds of things that just really showed that he cared about you beyond what you can do for him on the tennis court mm-hmm. and I think that kind of like connection and and trust is, is very hard to find and I, I think then as a player as well you kind of when you feel that that trust it's a lot easier for you to kind of take in his suggestions I guess even though like it's hard to say that everything he says is perfect but I think you get very far with the trust you know just mm-hmm. believe in what he says that he's trying to do the best he can for you and, and those kind of things that's really amazing to 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 find a coach like that because it, it doesn't come often it doesn't come around often and uh, you know it and I think like one of the most important skills it has to do with like a coach or just like a teacher yeah. or a mentor in general is uh the ability to you know take a concept and then just because people process it in different ways to be able to say in one way okay the person doesn't get it okay let me try saying the same thing in this way okay the person doesn't get it let me try to say it in this way and keep on like trying to reframe the same message yeah um until the person gets it um and that's uh i would say the most important skill that uh any uh teacher to any extent can can really have and like harness that to push people and make them believe that you know they could be better it's it's inspiring to hear you know stories like this coaches that are able to really make uh, an impact in people's careers because like you know you finished college and you know I'm sure you had your doubts of like oh you know maybe I won't go pro anymore Um, you know you're thinking about you know what am I going to do after tennis or what am I doing outside of tennis we need more people like that I would say for sure it's like you say I mean going through that period like going to college I mean it is a very uh, confusing time in your life I think for a lot of people you know like you have to grow up a little bit and uh, figure things out and know your next step I don't know it it could be very stressful and, and I think just having that bit of trust really takes you a long way but I do want to really point out though that I'm not taking anything away from like my time at LSU I got along great with like the coaches there uh, like Dan and Brian he's actually the head coach at LSU now he was the assistant when I was there mm-hmm. we keep in touch a lot and I think a big reason as well I can take upon myself like when I was at LSU I wasn't necessarily mature enough as well to maybe take in a lot of the things mm-hmm. so I, I remember we had a lot of issues when it came to like maybe coaching and like my tennis game and stuff and we kind of struggled to to find a good communication there Mm -hmm. and uh, like in hindsight I 
I mean, I can really admit that I, will, I probably wasn't mature enough to try to look at it uh, like from the right point of view and uh, everything. And I, and I think I kind of realized that two years in, but it, once you kind of start off on the wrong foot, I feel like it is very difficult to, to start over. Mm-hmm. So that's why it just kind of made more sense for me to just, I just wanted to start on a clean slate, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's why I decided to, to transfer. Mm-hmm. And uh, with other factors that I mentioned, you know, with like academic priorities as well and like other things it just made a lot of sense for me and uh, yeah I mean I've had a lot of people actually ask me about like if I transferred and if I would do it again and those kind of things and I I can actually 100% say that the way I did it I'm, I'm I would 100% do it again because I feel like I got to experience the best of two worlds almost because mm-hmm. you have LSU you have this huge like sports facilities all that thing and that whole culture and yeah it was really valuable my two years there Mm-hmm. And yeah, Santa Barbara maybe less focus on the sports aspect there, but more like with academics and character development. Yeah, so I mean, I, I feel like I managed to tap in. Really got the most out of my college experience for sure. Uh, so I'm very thankful to all the that's coaches and stuff I met there. That's really cool. So I want to transition a little bit uh, away from uh, college tennis because I think we we went on that for actually quite some time. <laughs> yeah, um, and get into the way more interesting part of your tennis career which is your professional career like yeah. playing uh playing itfs um you know competing and 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 trying to use that as a living so what <clears throat> when you graduated you know you mentioned you had some uh doubt yeah. if if you wanted to pursue tennis you know professionally what was what was the driving force that made you say, okay, this is what I'm gonna do? I mean, as I mentioned, or as you mentioned, like I had some doubts and actually when I graduated in 2018, I, I took about six months where I didn't touch a tennis racket at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess it just kind of dawned up be, uh, on me a little bit that, I mean, if I'm ever gonna do this, I'll put so much time into tennis that it would be foolish of me not to like give it a try a little bit and then mm-hmm. and see how I, how I feel about it. How old were you when you uh, graduated? So you graduated college. Twenty eighteen. I was 22, 22. 21, 22. And you're twenty six right now. Yeah. Like so, I took twenty eighteen. I took some time off. I guess like six months or so. And then in twenty nineteen, I I started playing. I had a couple of friends that recently graduated as well. So I mean, I had a great group of guys. Uh, all of them Americans actually from college uh, times. One of my best friends from LSU was actually competing on a circuit mm-hmm. at that time. So we ended up traveling together pretty much all year. Uh, in 2019 and it was going pretty well like everything was moving in the right direction I was climbing the rankings the right way and uh, yeah I was really enjoying myself like traveling a lot I was on the road probably for like nine months that year mm-hmm. and yeah I had a great time great friends playing good tennis got to like 650 I think in singles that year mm-hmm. and doubles like 350 nice and then uh, obviously in 2020 uh, COVID kind of hit in March and uh, yeah it kind of put a big stop to it but I must admit looking at it at that time I remember it was kind of like a uh, take it the right way uh, like it was kind of a blessing in disguise for me a little bit because I remember in February 2020 mm-hmm. I played my first uh, challenger event Wow! and I, I won the first round in the main draw there oh. and then in the second round I actually played against uh, Botic van der Sancho mm-hmm. And at that time he was ranked like 150. And in case people don't know, like I think about 
10 months later he made the quarters of the Australian Open he's like 30 in the world or 2020 something. yeah so, so I mean he was playing good tennis and at that time he was like 150 solid 150 player mm-hmm. and I remember I played him and I lost the first set like 6-3 and then the second set I was up 4-1 or 4-0 actually but I remember being up 4-0 that I I still didn't feel like I was up 4-0 it was more like he was down 4-0 it was more that he was just playing some bad tennis because I, I really just felt like I I had nothing to say really in what was going on in the match like if he was missing I would win if he was making it I would lose mm-hmm. and uh, then COVID hit the same week actually I lost the match there and then, then two days later I think everything shut down in March and it just kind of dawned upon me like if I want to play tennis I don't want to play tennis to be like top 500 in the world I want to play tennis to be like one of the best in the world or like that's at least ambitions or what I'm going into this and then mm-hmm. we'll see what happens and uh, I just really noticed that I like, took a step back and kind of like well the way I'm playing tennis right now like I don't know if people can see me or not but like, I'm not like the biggest guy I don't have like the biggest shots or that kind of weapons so I really felt like I needed to improve my like certain areas of my game in order to compete with guys like Botic or, or stuff like that mm-hmm. if I wanted to make it to Grand Slams or things that's really f- something I needed to improve I just kind of took a step back I, I actually managed to p- put together a team and we kind of made a little long-term plan that I was going to try to develop uh, and get stronger and bigger and kind of had a pretty much like a two-year plan uh, and those things. And then I guess it kind of fit together well with how the COVID was closed down. Mm-hmm. So pretty much all of 2020, I was just trying to get bigger, stronger. 2021, I started to compete more in Sweden and I kind of changed my game style as well, trying to be a lot more aggressive compared to being more of a counterpuncher mm-hmm. than I was before. Still, kind of am obviously, but but <laughs> get into a better level of it, and uh, yeah, twenty twenty two was supposed to be my kind of like coming out year, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then unfortunately, I, I kind of got injured in in January, and had an injury that kind of like stuck with me back and forth throughout the whole year. So I only ended up playing playing like I think twelve tournaments or something like that mm-hmm. in twenty twenty two. So I dropped the rankings a lot, and then. Yeah, here I am. Now you're <laughs> trying. Much. You're trying to grind back in back. Yeah, so I mean, it, it feels kind of crazy though, like that I started playing in 2019, and it, it's almost been like it's been like four years, I guess. Yeah. But it just feels kind of weird because I like in my head, it almost feels like I was on the tour for a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I mean, I guess I had the like last year, but it was just strange because I couldn't really play consistently or something and. In hindsight, obviously, I didn't know how bad the injury was and how long it was going to stick with me. In hindsight, I maybe would have, like, taken a longer period off so I could use, like, my protected ranking. Mm-hmm. So, because I, th- I think if you're out for three months at least, then you can, can use a protected ranking. But if you play events, mm-hmm. like, once a month, then you're kind of screwed with it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's always yeah. easy to be after sport, though, I guess. <laughs> a lot of things are out of your control, and, like, it takes a lot of... Uh, mental fortitude to be able to take these hits and just like continue just like one step after the other like moving forward into it what so you you want to be like you know everybody wants to be on the top obviously what ranking would you say is like if you got to this ranking you can retire you know gracefully and be like wow like i i did that (laughs) what is you know what's that number uh 
it's cool you say that though but i i must say i don't necessarily have a ranking of course like you, you can always dream like yeah being number one in the world would be amazing but i think the only thing i have set that i would be like that's by far my biggest goal when it comes to my athletic career would be to compete for sweden in the olympic games mm-hmm. has always been like my biggest dream growing up i, I guess i did like gymnastics as well growing up and olympics was always like the absolute epitome epitome or what do you epitome. Call it? epitome of of the sport and i guess a lot of tennis players you know you have wimbledon for example or like winning a grand slam and obviously i wouldn't wouldn't say no to that <laughs> but for me it's just like representing your country in the olympic games what did, uh, would be the biggest thing what does that look like so i know uh you have like the emer brothers yeah um I'm blanking on uh you have some, there's some doubles players that are yeah. really good for Henry Gordon is doing well yeah he's yeah. like 50 or something in the world right now 50 60. you want you want to represent Sweden what is what do you have to do you know who do you need to know or yeah I mean you know. I, don't, I don't actually know all the in, ins and outs there but I'm, I'm pretty sure the Swedish Olympic Committee only sends someone if they think uh, they could take a medal how many spots do they have do they get like one or two probably? I think they could send like three or two or three maybe mm-hmm. or maybe two or two sorry but yeah from my understanding it's more like they only send someone if they think they have a legit chance of taking a medal mm. so if it comes to that then maybe I need to be top 10 <laughs> mm. for them to think that you can make a bronze medal or something so that would be tough but I don't know it's just uh, that's really my, my biggest dream uh, when it comes to tennis like playing the Olympic Games mm. obviously like a kind of stepping stone towards that would be to represent Sweden in the Davis Cup I was about to ask yeah Davis Cup yeah so yeah you think you have a shot at representing for Davis Cup? I think so. I mean, uh, I've been a part of the like the, the trial squad, kind of like the tryouts, I guess, before they they make the final cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is usually only five people in the squad, and then we're like eight people, I think, or, or so, taken out to to kind of compete for the spots. But when it comes to those kind of decisions, I guess there's always politics involved and and different factors that you can't really control. So I think at the end of the day, it's just. I have to focus on my my tennis game, try to get the best ranking I can, and then see what see what happens and let it play out itself mm-hmm. in a sense. But I do really think I have very good chances of making the team. I, I'm I'm very confident in my game and my potential there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think I have a good chance there. So obviously, my if you want to say short term goal right now would be to to do well enough to try to compete for a spot in Madrid this year. Sweden actually qualified a couple weeks back beating Bosnia mm-hmm. it's a great job by them there and then we made it to Madrid so and I think that's in like end of the year mm-hmm. something you spent you recently spent like uh, almost three weeks in uh, Tunisia playing a few tournaments yeah you got through the qualies of each of uh, each of the three tournaments that you played uh, unfortunately losing first round you don't get points unless you pl- win you yeah. know main draw match do you have any points right now yeah I, I think I have like maybe 10 10 singles Oh wow! Like a hundred doubles, maybe something. And you're still playing qualies? Yeah, that's crazy. It was tough these tournaments. Like I, I, I think on the on the cut there, I was like a thousand maybe, and these uh, these tournaments the cut for the main draw was probably like seven hundreds. I mm. think so. It was very tough. I mean, it usually is like that at the start of the year, but I do think it the whole circuit is still a little bit affected by COVID and everything that happened. Like those less tournaments, and I I do think the whole ranking is a little messed up right now and I think it needs at least a year or two to kind of like calm down mm. I can kind of just to, to follow up on that a little bit like the previous tournaments I played before Tunisia I was in in uh, the UK playing tournaments 
and my doubles partner for those weeks uh, kind of explained to me a little bit how his 2022 year was so he's uh he was ranked around like 300s but what happened in 2022 was they opened up the points so you didn't have like a because in 2021 it was kind of locked down from covid and same yeah. thing in 2020 so it opened it up in 2022 but i think they didn't have the same amount of tournaments as they usually would have in a calendar so what kind of happened was you had a lot of people that all of a sudden needed to defend their points but it was few tournaments Mm-hmm. So then it got kind of like compromised, and then all of a sudden, he, for example, had like maybe a, a challenger quarterfinal. We had to defend I don't know sixteen points or something, mm-hmm. but he couldn't even get into the uh, the challenger because the cut was too high. Uh, so he would go ahead to play a futures tournament, and where the most amount of points you can win is twenty five, and then in that tournament you have like five or six guys that are in the same situation as him. They're ranked like three twenty. Kind of like a, like a inflation of yeah, ranking points. Yeah, I mean exactly. So so that was kind of the issue. So he would sit there, and there would be four or five other guys that all of them had to win the tournament in order to maintain the ranking. Mm-hmm. So then naturally, a lot of guys that were like three hundreds got pushed out, and then uh, in hindsight, like in retrospect, they pushed out like a couple of guys that were five hundred to like seven hundreds. So I think right now it's, I think this year you know with the tournaments I think every everything is gonna be like more back to normal with the amount of tournaments played and I think mm-hmm. with that naturally the ranking is gonna like become more precise mm-hmm. I guess. How do you how do you decide which tournaments to go to? What's like your scheduling you know thought process of like I want to play here or there or I think I can get into this one or this one is like the same weekend as this other one. So I think there's going to be the lower level. So, I mean, you can, of course, have that. Uh, but me and my team, I think the mid, mid, like the main thing we go on when we try to schedule is like what kind of surface we're playing on. Because mm-hmm. we don't want to switch surface that much, like go for clay or indoor or outdoor. So we're trying to stick to a surface and we have kind of like time frames that we play in those surfaces. And then it kind of comes to more of like a logistic thing. Obviously, the, the, you have different paths, you know, you can go to tournaments you can fly around like long distance tournaments and stuff to try to get maybe quick points or easy points which sure works uh, I think very well in the, in the start but as we're kind of playing the long game I guess I, I always kind of go back to the quote you know if you want to be the best you, you got to beat the best mm-hmm. so I think even if you maybe sneak your way up to a certain level it, it's gonna even out in the long run mm-hmm. to be honest so, that, so that's why right now when it comes to the scheduling and stuff we're trying to kind of prioritize tournaments that that fit well with the surface and logistics of it mainly what's your favorite surface uh i would say it's outdoor hardcore but after my weeks in tunisia i might might be changing (laughs) that (laughs) no i don't know Uh, i mean i i do really enjoy indoors i guess i've grown up in there i was about to say i feel like most of your most of your tennis like upbringing has been indoors yeah Um, who are some of the top players that you've played against in uh, in juniors or in uh, in in men's? Uh, when it comes to current top players, it's for sure like Berrettini. Played against, I think we're the same age. Hurkash, Hubert Hurkash, I think we're the same age as well. And uh, like Alexei Popperin, I think he's a year younger than me though. And um, was this in juniors? Yeah, so it was all in juniors mainly. Were they were they huge? back then how like, was it as, was as it? in good players or huge as in like like big? body uh 
I actually I gotta be honest I, I, I barely recall it I just remember I, I kicked Matteo Bertini's ass and I oh, yeah. didn't really think about it twice <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure you'd say the opposite way around these days <laughs> uh, do you do you hit with uh, the Emer brothers often when um, yeah like I mean I, I try to as much as possible obviously we're on very different schedules and stuff and and at their level they're not home that much especially also because it is a little tricky when it comes to tennis because you know to play tennis you have to play with someone mm -hmm. and obviously when you're the the best in a country kind of by a, a good margin there's not that good sparring opportunity for them it's great a sparring opportunity for me <laughs> obviously so it kind of makes sense for them you know when they're out or in between tournaments that maybe they go to spots where they have other players to play against more at their level mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, whenever they're home, I'm, I'm always kind of all over them, trying to get some hits in, <laughs> trying to make the most out of it. So, I mean, we, we for sure get a couple of good hits in and good practices and stuff, and it mm -hmm. always gets very competitive. We grew up together, uh, me and uh, both the Demon brothers, actually. Mm -hmm. so, how, how old are they? I think. Uh, so, Elias is the same age as me, uh -huh. and then Mika is two years younger uh, than, than us. And so, were you guys playing like juniors together as well? Yeah. So, we played a lot of those, and like, first time I pretty much met him or got to know him was in when I was 11 mm -hmm. at that tournament because he won in his region as well and I can't remember if we played against each other in singles but I'm pretty sure he won in singles probably mm -hmm. I got like fifth place in singles but I won mixed doubles actually <laughs> they had that. I thought it was pretty cool that tournament because in every region you have a guy and a, a girl that mm -hmm. will win and they will get matched up in, in mixed doubles as well for kind of like a so I do cool. remember I, I beat Elias in mixed doubles at least uh, <laughs> at that time but yeah we, we played against each other throughout juniors and uh, but he was always like a level above me mm -hmm. I was always kind of like top five I would say in Sweden mm -hmm. and he was always like fighting for the one and two spot mm -hmm. mainly so who did you who did you look up to when you were a junior who was like your inspiration of like you know I want to be like this player I want you know who inspired you as a, as a child that's a good question. I never thought of it too much, to be honest. I I do know I I guess it was kind of like people around me. And one of my big idols was actually Jonas Bjorkman. Mm -hmm. uh, I really liked the way he's, he played and I was always kind of intrigued by doubles from a very young age in tennis. I, I really enjoyed the the tactical aspects of it. And I, I think I kind of developed my, my singles game around that as well. I like to come forward. I like to find angles drop shots and kind of mix it up a lot as mm -hmm. uh, so I would actually say that he was probably my first kind of tennis idol and uh, very luckily for me he was also a very nice guy and kind of around me a decent amount so managed to get a couple practices in with him and and yeah I, I feel like he, we kind of developed a good low mentorship during that time mm -hmm. so I, I mean I for sure want to give some, some thanks to him because he, he for sure inspired me a lot to, to keep going uh, in tennis like from that kind of like 15 teenage mm -hmm. years have, have you ever met uh, Bjorn Borg you know if we're going to talk about Swedish tennis I think it's yeah. we have to talk about this guy at least a little bit no of course I mean he's kind of like the I mean he's a hero <laughs> Swedish tennis I mean he's kind of like a superstar. superstar for sure have you met him uh, yeah I met him a couple of times but I actually can't recall like having a real conversation with him mm -hmm. uh, he's a very kind of reserved person uh, but one of my first coaches actually playing tennis where, where I kind of grew up in that little minor smaller club they were part of uh, a bigger club but they only had outdoor courts uh, as well that 
club that I started playing at. Mm-hmm. But so when it comes to the Ender Club, my, my first coach was actually very close friends with Bjorn. Mm-hmm. And this was probably like 15 years ago. I don't know his timeline of things, but but he I remember him being in the club sometimes hitting with my, my coach every now and then. So I'm pretty sure I like said hi to him maybe or something like that. But uh, yeah, I've seen him around a couple of times and now actually it's fun. I've been competing some against his son, uh, Leoborg. And yeah, we know each other pretty well. He's a really good up and coming player. He, uh, so obviously with him playing, I, I see Bjorn every now and then mm-hmm. some of his matches and stuff, but, but still he's, yeah. And what, what about uh, Robin Soderling? Have you, I've, I've seen actually a video you know, like you pr- training with him yeah so I mean I, I tried to practice with him a good amount uh, I think this was during the COVID time actually uh, when most people were at home playing some tennis and uh, yeah he's, he's a great guy he's actually in charge of the, the Swedish Davis Cup team I think he stepped down a couple mm. of months ago uh, but he was the captain of the Swedish Davis Cup team and he also lived pretty close to where my club is and uh, I was kind of all over him <laughs> trying to get some practice in and mm-hmm. some sparring sessions and yeah, luckily for me, we got we got some in. Great player. Uh, it's a really heavy ball. I give him that. Is it true that uh, whenever he hits a forehand, all of Stockholm shakes? A little bit, yeah. I, mean, I know they had to renovate like one of the parliament buildings because he was <laughs> competing in the Stockholm Open. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, Stockholm Open. That's a, that's also another thing. Uh, you have you been to Stockholm Open? Yeah, you went. You went to watch. You've seen like you know some of the top guys. I was. Uh, we actually we were there um, uh, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I got to see like the board, and there's some like Del Potro won it, Burdick won it, Rune won it last year. Um, there's some like big names up there. So like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, what was the question again? So like, if I've been I there, I don't or... think I really asked the question. Uh, I was just kind of talking about it. Um, yeah. Um, what's your uh, I think it's the world's. It might be the world's oldest indoor tournament. I think actually, when it comes oh, to really? tennis, so it has a lot of history, and and obviously that tennis club has a lot of history in it. And uh, I haven't been a member there that long. I mean, I came there when I was like fifteen, sixteen. Mm-hmm. But like when it comes to the Stockholm Open, I, I must say I never really watched it too much. I always knew about it, but I I don't think I maybe could afford like you know, check out with the tickets and stuff. And mm-hmm. we lived a little bit outside of the city, so it was a little bit of a hassle to get in there until I started playing at the club but the past couple of years I've been fortunate enough to be around there a lot more I managed to compete in it the past two years mm-hmm. oh so really you played in it yeah so through that I, they've like been 250 yeah so they've been very cool I, I like my qualities though right yeah so two years ago I, I we actually have a wildcard tournament for it uh-huh. in uh, Stockholm because the, the three clubs in, in Stockholm they kind of have one wildcard mm-hmm. or two but yeah one wildcard so we compete for one wildcard two qualities and I managed to win that tournament two years ago. So I got a walk out to qualify in singles, and I actually wow. ended up getting uh, in as an alternate in doubles with the guy I actually lost to in the first round of qualifies <laughs> in singles. But so I played a main draw doubles last year. Are you so you're telling two me years. you played you played an ATP event? Yeah, yeah. So oh. I played it twice. I then last year I actually played doubles together with Leo Borg. Oh wow! Maybe, yeah. So we played doubles together. That's if you really haven't checked cool. that out, go check it out on my YouTube channel. Yeah, def- I'll, I'll definitely <laughs> add it. some commentary. We had a tough draw, though. We played against uh, two top 10 guys, uh, Harry Hellevar and Lloyd Glasspool. I know Glasspool. Yeah. From uh, Netherlands, right? Uh, Britain. Britain? Yeah, UK. And then Harry Hellevar is Finnish. Yeah. 
but yeah tough one there but that's really cool it's a good match though but through that like I, I've had the luxury of kind of being around the tournament and, and I must really say I make the most out of it um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming the, the people working there are a little uh, annoyed by me when I when I after I've lost I'm, I'm there like from morning to evening running around trying to get hits in with all the top guys and that's right so you're probably a hitting partner like, yeah so I was really trying to make the most out of it and, and trying to become good enough friends with them so they'll pick me <laughs> for hits and yeah I mean I guess it worked out well so far like last year I, or the first year I was there I managed to hit with Sinner a good amount oh wow I hit some with like Tommy Paul that's sick and uh, probably a bunch of other guys and this year I managed to hit some with like Tsitsipas uh, Holger Rune was there oh shit and I don't know like Jalso I don't know it's just a lot of the top guys Helivar or uh, Rusovori <laughs> for example and all those guys there so always just trying to make the most out of it and uh, what, what is it like playing with these guys do you feel intimidated stepping on court with them uh, even if it is just for practice I mean probably a little bit I must say I was a little bit intimidated when I was going to play with Sinner for mm-hmm. sure and uh, but I, I must hand it to him and his team like they were extremely welcoming mm-hmm. like just so nice about it and and even though like I'm, I'm obviously nowhere near his level like the way they were kind of working with me or communicating with me and everything just felt very respectable mm-hmm. like they never made it seem like he was above me if, if you know what I mean so what, what's that Swedish word again? Jantelag uh, <laughs> he, he was Jantelag? <laughs> yeah no I mean yeah he was just very humble uh, in his way and uh, so he just made me feel very comfortable on the court if that makes sense and, and we ended up having a great hit and I think they they liked practicing with me so actually after that practice he asked me if we could play some we ended up playing like three or four times I think that week mm-hmm. maybe didn't do the best job because he lost first round mm-hmm. <laughs> against Andy Murray actually but it was a good match that's, bro, that's so cool but uh, yeah it was a great experience if you haven't checked it out I, I have a that practice session on YouTube actually yeah you also have that one <laughs> Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, this guy is a serial YouTuber on Venice. Uh, <laughs> so actually, um, I think uh, last segment that I want to I want to kind of I want to dive into is uh, your journey as a content creator for tennis. Um, yep. I think you're. I really like your stuff. I think you're tapping into, you know, a really uh, untouched market. I, there's so much coverage that you get on like ATP. I think in maybe only like the last year did they really start to bump up the coverage on the Challenger Tour. Yeah. But there is absolutely nothing coming on like the ITF level, and like that's where most of like the most of the tennis is played, um, and that's where you know you're not you're not playing for you know the same paychecks that these top guys are, um, but it is you know I'm. I can say this, you know, because I watch, I go to the U.S. Open every single year, and I love going to the qualies. Yeah. You know, granted it's free, and I don't have to, <laughs> but like the the intensity is right up there with all of these top players because it's like you're really digging in deep, digging yourself into a corner, and just like fighting, and it's really uh, make it or break it, and it's. It breaks a lot of players, yeah. um, and so I think it's cool that you're you're you know trying to do some coverage on, on that end. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you put you. yeah you put you put, I see you put a lot of effort into it. It's not easy <laughs> making videos, and like especially uh, you know losing and then having to like relive it again. <laughs> what inspired you to do that? Like because you're the only one who do, who's doing this, and like 
I feel like a lot of other people could, but they don't. Yeah, I mean, the way it kind of started, I guess I've always kind of enjoyed filming things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm a big, big rookie when it comes to like editing and those kind of, I don't have any background or any experience in that. But I, I've always kind of enjoyed filming things, I guess. And uh, I guess it started when I started working with my team in 2020. My fitness coach and I, we started to put together a team. And as I was playing tournaments and stuff, it, it was... Uh, I mean, I, I didn't have the financials to bring it with me at tournaments, so it kind of just started that I started recording my sessions. I would film it to them, and they would just kind of look at it and, and see where I'm at. And and we were, I thought we were working very well. We still are work, working very well uh, remotely. Like I practice a lot with like a fitness monitor or heart rate monitor, mm-hmm. so you can kind of see where I'm at, and then kind of I get put that together with the footage of me playing to see where where I am or where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess it just started from there that I started recording my sessions for them or for us. And then I started just to notice when I was recording it, like some fun points in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I guess also with the game style I do, like it usually ends up being a, a couple of quirky, funny points. Mm-hmm. And I just started posting the points every little here and there. And then I figured like, why not post some match highlights? Mm-hmm. as well and I started doing that actually a little bit about two years ago or a year and a half ago mm-hmm. I started competing again but didn't really have too many people that, that cared about it too much and, and I I guess I kind of just didn't really know how to go about it mm-hmm. and then I guess I hit a little bit of a, a surge like during the Stockholm Open this past uh, year and uh, got a little bit of traction through that and, and started doing more videos I guess I kind of found my way of creating the videos a little more commentating giving them more of an insight and I, it seems like people will resonate or, or enjoy that mm-hmm. and uh, I guess it just started to build from there and, and like you said when it comes to if you want to call it the, the more the minor leagues in tennis not to say that it's like more difficult or anything like that compared to the ATP circuit and stuff but I, w- I would go to say that it's very different like you say when people are competing for like going paycheck from paycheck it is a lot tougher financially and and i think it just naturally makes people be more emotional (laughs) in that kind of circuit and Mm. it's tough like uh, out there is a a lot of tough people and i guess in a way i just want to like give a little voice to them somehow Mm -hmm. i'm still working on how to uh, it takes up a lot of time to try to do it for myself so I mean it is a little difficult even though I would like to to maybe highlight a couple of my friends or, or people that I really think deserve a platform or deserve to to get more credit for all the effort they put in they're really good guys and everything or good girls as well but uh, I guess the current state I'm in right now I, I kind of have my hands full uh, with my stuff but yeah. hopefully that will be something I can kind of uh, develop in the future what what's something that you see because you travel around for these ITF tournaments that people who don't know don't you know they don't know what's something that you know well I mean well, for sure the first thing that comes to mind is that you know when someone asks me what I'm doing for a living or what I'm doing uh, I say playing professional tennis like traveling the world and stuff and once you hear that I think it's very natural for people to think like oh this is amazing you know like you go to France one week and the next week you're in Italy or, or something like that but obviously it's not like when I'm in France I can go to the Eiffel Tower or sightsee too much it's usually I'm in a in a pretty <laughs> dark tennis uh, tennis uh, club mm-hmm. for about 10 hours a day kind of stuck in there and 
<laughs> not to complain that it's bad, but like it, it's not like I'm I'm on vacation mm-hmm. going on these tournaments, and I think that's a little misconception, I guess. When when you travel the world, it sounds all glamorous, but it for sure has its ups and downs, and uh, it is difficult out there. And and one of the biggest issues, or not issues, but problems, I would say, or like difficulties uh, traveling around like that is the logistics of it, because. I guess people maybe underestimate how tricky it is to, to try to figure out, as you mentioned, or talked about before with the scheduling and like with the flights, itinerary, finding a place to live and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think once you get higher up, the, the kind of the organizers help out more. Mm-hmm. But obviously in the minor leagues, you are very much on your own and you have to figure that out. And, and most of the players out there aren't maybe have the most experience in it. So they're trying to figure out everything on their own a little bit. and. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give credit to all the people that are kind of doing it uh, as they love <laughs> love what they do. I mean, they're yeah. obviously they're just following their dreams and, and trying to do what they can what, to figure it out. Uh, what's your favorite part about it, about the traveling and the playing? Uh, I think it's like the, for me, it, it, I think my biggest driving force is the challenge of it. I, I think I, I kind of enjoy the, I've learned to enjoy <laughs> the challenge I guess so I, I think that's my biggest sparring point or what is it like motivation what have you learned from yourself by you know going through all these challenges has it unlocked any doors in your in your mind or you know to who you are <laughs> yeah I don't know how, how deep I can go with it but I'm assuming like at, at the age I am most people older than me can probably vouch for going through about the same but like going through this mid-twenties or something you're trying to figure out like who you are I guess trying to be your own person uh, sustain I don't know just trying to figure out figure figure who you are out and I think that's for sure a great kind of uh, way to do it is to really challenge yourself I mean put yourself in uncomfortable positions and, and really mm-hmm. don't shy away from the challenge and like the way you respond to it I think that that just speaks volumes to, to who you are mm-hmm. and that, that makes it more evident to you who you are mm-hmm. and uh yeah, I think I guess you just kind of get forced into to figuring it out this way. <laughs> so I guess this is more the forced way. That, yeah. How do you? <laughs> so actually, how do you? How do you like logistically? How do you plan a trip when you don't know how long you're gonna be at that place? You know, let's say you lose first round qualies and you're expecting to at least play main draw or something like that. Like, yeah. So I mean, what? for sure, well, a big factor for choosing tournaments is usually at least for me uh, like travel wise what would be a good like if it's closer to or if it's like a big airport so I know there's usually because I, I live in Stockholm we have a pretty big airport like with Arland that has good connections to more places around Europe mm-hmm. if I'm playing a tournament that is close by to a big airport like Paris or London or something like that then I know logistically it's going to be a lot of flights out there back and forth so then I could get like one way ticket there and then figure it out as it goes mm-hmm. but for example like I, I was as we mentioned like in Tunisia the past couple of weeks and to that tournament I was looking at it and the flights were pretty bad and pretty expensive like a one way ticket there was like 400 euros a lot. and uh, I actually ended up purchasing a, a, a round trip ticket because I could get a round trip ticket for 500 euros and even though I didn't know when I was going to go home I, I looked it up and it was like I could rebook it for like difference mm-hmm. I guess or something and uh, I kind of calculated to be around like 550 for a round trip if I changed the itinerary and things mm-hmm. so I ended up buying a f- yeah 
that's kind of how it worked it out, I guess. But it's, I guess it's always like kind of week to week, you try to figure it out. But I'd say most people buy a one way ticket. <laughs> and they're just going to wing it. Yeah, it's just a one way ticket to, to paradise. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's actually one story, uh, kind of like uh, back up, actually, like one question ago, um, talking about like, you know, the, the traveling and what your favorite part about it is and uh, the, you know, f- figuring out who you are, you know, through this, uh, that, you know, I want to tell you a story that my friend told me she is, uh, she's, she's, she's a professional tennis player from India. Yeah. Uh, her name is Sharmada Balu and she, I would say she's like a 20, 28 right now. Um, but when she was 22, she had qualified for, she's living your dream. She qualified for the national team for India to represent them in the Olympics. Okay. She uh, she went through the trials. She got the spot, and then she was maybe like top three hundred in the world, maybe uh, maybe even like maybe two fifty or something like that. Yeah. Uh, right before the Olympics, she sprained her ankle, really really bad, and so it, she was uh, she was off it for about I'd say like six months, which is like a, a long time yeah, for, yeah. for 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 a sprained ankle. And she, when she, when she, when she uh, recovered from the injury, she didn't jump back on tour. Uh, she took a few years. She, she actually moved out. She was from, um, uh, I want to say Chennai, something, something like that. Yeah. And she was like out, she moved outside of the city. She was, uh, she was like a babysitter nanny for this like rich family where it's just kind of like, you know, hang out with the kids, play some tennis with them. But she had a lot of free time, and uh, during that time, like she explicitly didn't want to come back to tennis. Uh, she wanted to take a break, uh, just so she could figure out who she is without tennis, yeah. uh, because she had been playing tennis her entire life. And it's like, if I don't have tennis, what do I have? Uh, she found herself like doing a lot of writings, uh, a lot of poetry photography just kind of figuring out who she is like what goes through her head what is her daily life like yeah. you know we spoke about this a little bit earlier of like the life of like an athlete and like you know non-athlete where it's like you're very much in a bubble yeah um and it was actually pretty inspiring uh to hear like her story of like you know taking i think she took like a solid like two three years off of just like not even thinking about tennis and just like living her life and kind of like quote unquote living a normal life yeah. uh, she started she tried making like a designing tennis dresses and like trying to get like get into some like apparel yeah but she ran into some uh uh production issues when it came to like prototyping the garments and okay. things like that mm-hmm. uh so that kind of fell through and then uh, she's actually on the comeback now uh she's playing again i would say she's back off back up to like 400 in the world in the matter of like uh, uh, nine months or so, um, yeah. I, and that was like a, a cool, cool little story that like I got to hear direct, like from her. She came to New York to visit, yeah, or she or she came to the U.S. to play a bunch of different tournaments, and then uh, uh, she spent some time in New York, and so we got we got to hit a little bit. We got to do it. I met her at a at a India in India, and I went to a wedding in India, and that's where I met her and like this whole the, the whole group of like really like top like Indian players and we're just like hanging out and having fun um, 
But I was like, uh, I mean, it, it's cool what you talk about though, like that that subject. That really is something that I don't know why or or how from a young age it's always been something I kind of thought about a lot because I've seen throughout my tennis career, if you want to say so, like I've seen. Uh, you know, a lot of kids that are very good, but from an early age, maybe drop out of a school. And then and, and all of a sudden, as you mentioned, you know, their whole identity becomes tennis. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very difficult. I mean, it's hard for me to speak to speak for them, but I, I, I just think it, it's kind of could clash sometimes, you know, if maybe they don't do as well as, as planned in tennis. And then they see all their friends who, who've gone through school and graduated. And I don't know. It, I life. think, yeah, like, I think it could be very stressful uh all those things and I, and I i feel like a lot of kids uh that get pushed into tennis don't really understand the full grasps of what you're actually getting yourself into and it's hard to say who like obviously most of the responsibility probably lands on the parents to kind of be there and, and kind of give them the full breakdown before they say like all right i want to quit school and, and play full-time tennis when i'm 15 mm-hmm. i i feel like as a kid you 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 don't really understand like you know as most 15 year olds you just think the the earth is flat or whatever you want like <laughs> i mean and uh, i i guess that was something from very early age that i kind of thought about i guess like i don't know i definitely feel like it takes your childhood away like, yeah you're forced to mature much quicker and like looking at me like at my tennis accomplishments are extremely limited like not even <laughs> close to like who, how far you got to but like I was training I, I, I was training like I felt like I was going to go pro like going to the gym uh, five six seven days a week playing playing uh, almost every single day and just like you know in that mindset um, and it, it I, I, I felt like it, it definitely took away a lot of my uh, adolescence like when my friends they were like after school, they would hang out, you know, they would go get food or go to the park or do, do something like that. And I was always going to tennis practice after school. On the weekends, I would get like, they would be going to parties. I would be playing tournaments. Yeah. Um, and like, I never really gave it too much thought just because like, I loved playing tennis and like, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And for me, I always felt like you're wasting time if just by like, you know, going to the park and shooting the shit yeah. like you you know you need to be you need to be spending that time productively and like you know although i f- it it i feel like it drew away from a lot of like you know the the normal experience that like most uh, kids go through um i think it gave me and i know hopefully for you too of like a real competitive advantage in the real world as well because when you're not when, when you like when you're a kid all you have to do is just like go to school and play tennis like you don't have to you don't have to you don't worry about bills you don't worry about um you know these other things like you're you have no responsibilities yeah. and so this is when you have like the most time to do it and then also your brain is still in like the formative years where like you absorb everything like a sponge and like you're you you're 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 doing things that may not reap direct rewards i think like for you it's it's a little bit more direct because you're you're playing tennis professionally now whereas for me uh not so much but like you know i can at least say that i did something and i've 
gotten to like a you know a mastery proficiency in something that you know you don't have the opportunity to as you get older because you have you, you have work you have a, then you have a girlfriend or you have a wife or you have kids or you know you you can't take as much risk as you get older because of the responsibilities that you have no for sure i mean i, I think it's always like it's 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 so hard to say though as we like we're speculating with it because there's so many pros and cons like choosing the, the path of playing tennis full-time from a very young age like there's a lot of good and bad <laughs> like sides of, about it for sure mm-hmm. but w- one thing that i i could say though that I, I really definitely think is right or wrong is that um that we should kind of give kids a better grasp of what that life looks like because i think most kids you know when they're 14 or 15 and they're like what do you want to be when you're growing up they say i want to be federer you know like they want to be roger federer for example mm-hmm. and obviously like they see on tv they see him kiss the Wimbledon trophy and like and that they see all the the positives of it but i think somehow it also needs to come forward at least before you make such a big decision as to like drop out of school that it's not all like <laughs> so tough so, like, I mean like, just some way to like present it that like alright so if you play tennis you know you're competing 25 tournaments a year for a calendar year you're probably on the road for like 30-35 weeks a year and that's kind of like the lifestyle it is like the average <laughs> paycheck is not great or those kind of things and I, I guess because I just my experience from it you know you have most kids that grow up and they say like I want to become a doctor I want to become a school teacher I don't know whatever dreams they have as a kid but I feel like before they make a decision to like pursue a career as a surgeon they get presented with alright if you want to be a surgeon here's you gotta go through eight week, eight years of med school and then you gotta go through yeah. eight years of like uh, residency yeah and yeah. so like so they kind of lay that out for you before you actually make a decision to go there and I, I think that's kind of lacking a little bit in tennis what, you know <laughs> what do you think we can do to either uh, inspire the next generation or to properly inform them of what it really means to uh, try to be a professional tennis player? Like, the way I've thought about it mainly, though, is, is kind of with the Swedish Federation. Uh, I think I brought it up a couple of times, but obviously me, to my life, I, I guess I wish I would have done more concrete stuff instead of just, like, spitting out things that I think they should do better, as mm-hmm. I, I feel like most people do towards other professions and things. <laughs> uh, so I guess I'm one of those people, but I, I just wish as at least as a federation that it's a bit your responsibility to kind of because I, I assume most countries work the same way that if you have a very promising junior that the federation is there kind of like poking at him like go play like pursue tennis your full-time career but i still think that the the, the federation or the one that's kind of like pushing them towards giving up their adolescence a little bit for tennis should give them a little bit more of a I think it's their responsibility to kind of know what they're going into or or structure it up in a way where they can still kind of maintain their adolescence in a way and tennis like with maybe a, a kind of like an academy setup or with a homeschooling thing or like online school just some kind of way to do it as well as possible obviously there's no way to make it perfect but for me one of the biggest points was like when I started playing professional tennis or I've had other people that have been starting to pursue professional tennis I get, I get asked almost 
daily from people on Instagram and stuff that I want to pursue professional tennis. I want to get into college tennis and stuff that ask me for tips. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of give them a best rundown of my experience. But one big shock for people when you want to start playing professional tennis is, is usually the financials of it. You know, you start playing the future circuit and you know that like, you have no idea when you're 15 that if you play on the, the way you have to start off is like, you're probably going to lose about a thousand dollars every week you're playing tournaments. And like, just, just knowing that, I think it just kind of sets you up a little bit more to kind of understand that from a young age, I need sponsors, I need help, I need support, I need like, a, I need a fitness coach team. Like there's no way when you're 18 years old, you have like the, the knowledge how to be a professional tennis player, how to be a professional athlete physically. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you don't have any experience of it. And I think that's where it just kind of lacks a little bit uh, kind of the the information about it like I wish there was a way that maybe if my parents at least could turn to the federation if I am like very good promising junior that if my parents could maybe turn to the federation and go like like we I think we have something going here like what's the next step like how does this look like Mm -hmm. because they don't have an experience like that was kind of my situation you know with with my parents for example Mm -hmm. since they don't have any background in tennis they they just kind of went off a lot about like what my coaches were saying and, and, and such and uh, I remember very clearly, like when I was uh, 16, I went a year earlier in school or, or skipped a grade in school. So I, I had to go to college when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's the normal though in the US maybe, but 17, way, 18. So I remember I was like 16 or 17 going through that process where I was starting to get a little recruited to college and things. and. I was kind of determined to go to college pass when I was like since 14, 15. Mm-hmm. But I started doing better. I won like the Swedish championships under 18s when I was a year young, I think, in both singles and doubles. And the federation kind of wanted me to to stay in Sweden and or didn't want me to go to college. That was kind of main, mm-hmm. the main thing though. And I remember I specifically told the, the, the people I was in contact with, I was like, so like, so you don't want me to go to college. Here's kind of what I've put down are the pros of going to college. So like, what's what's your counter? What's your like kind of like straight, counter offer? Straight to the business. No, like like pretty Bottom straight up. Line. Like I remember asking that, and I remember specifically they kind of told me, "We'll figure it out." Like, don't worry, we'll, we'll figure something out. Pretty much. I feel like that is like, if if there's ever a motto in just like the tennis world, it's we'll figure it out. Yeah, and like I can't speak. I mean, I guess I'm gonna speak somewhat of a lot of my friends, but so in my age group, I was born '96, so there. And I remember I came across some article. I think that was around the same time that I started to decide that I wanted to go to college when I was like 14, 15. Mm-hmm. I came across an article that said like the average age of top hundred players are 28, 27 yeah. in the world, or something like that. Kind of old, yeah. So I remember I started thinking about like the financials of it, and when I talked to the federation or those people there. When I was like 17, I was like, all right, I have 10 years until I'm like, going to be at my peak. Yeah. So like I have 10 years of trying to figure it out. And I guess it started to dawn on me like that it's not free to to travel around the world or do things. So then it was like, well, how am I going to do that? If the Federation maybe came to me like, are we going to cover all your expenses for four years forward mm-hmm. or something like that? Then I could actually like take a stance to it. But so I ended up going to college. But then I know a lot of my friends who are like my age and my level or a little bit better and such they kind of started to pursue a professional career and every one of them except for Elias 
stopped playing when they were about 23, I think. They got burned out, you think? I mean, it was a mix between burned out, but also like they, they didn't it. have the funding. And, and I think there's all kinds of factors. Yeah. But if you if like four or five years doing a career where you're not making any money, where you're losing money, it's it's difficult. And it's not too many people on the circuit, you know, they can break through when they're 19, 20 years old and get to a spot where they're making a lot of money in tennis. And I think that whole thing is, an, is a bit of an issue, I guess, with, with those. Because, I mean, I feel like they would have done great. <laughs> they would have done great in college tennis or something like that. But not saying that, like, when they quit their career, like, they're they're all doing amazing now playing paddle tennis, actually, and, and different things and, and doing their careers or life after so I mean for sure those years helped shape them in, in different ways or forms as competitive people in whatever career they pursued they were going to do well mm-hmm. but but still I, I it would be curious to talk to them maybe and see how, how they maybe would have done it different if they had all the, the cards on the table before they took the decision not to go to college for example or, or stuff mm-hmm. like that but it's all speculation though I guess alright so for the last Segment. I think I said this before, but this is going to be the last segment. I'm going to rattle off some questions for you. Uh, don't think too much about it. Just give me like the first thing that comes to your mind. Yeah. Uh, if you could win one tournament in the world, which one would it be? Olympics. Olympics. If you could change one rule in tennis, on professional in professional tennis, what would you change? I'll probably play with the leg court serve. No lets. Yeah, like like college tennis. You know, you play with the. Let's. Yeah. Yeah. Who is top five underrated tennis players? Underrated. Bernard Tomic. Current Bernard Tomic. <laughs> He's a little underrated. He's coming up now, though. No? I can name some overrated. No. It's, uh, yeah. What are no, some overrated players? No, 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 skip that. <laughs> well, I, th- I think without. I really like him. He's a nice guy. Must mm-hmm. add that in. But Casper Ruud. Uh huh. Just the fact that he almost became number one in the world. I'm sorry, but he should not have gotten that close. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I think he is an amazing player yeah. and really good, but I just don't think he he's at the point yet where he deserves to be that close to number one spot. Mm-hmm. But hopefully in the future. Do you wear sunscreen before playing a match? Never. I hate the, the sticky. If, and then last question. If you could play doubles with one player, who would it be? It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That concludes it for this episode of the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. Uh, we talked about so many things, uh, anywhere from uh, college tennis to professional tennis to the things that people don't necessarily see when, if they're outside of this uh, sphere. So, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to talk, talk a little bit about that and uh, give light to some of these topics. Really glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on. And I think we might be competing like Joe Rogan or something now with the length of this podcast. (laughs) Any last words that you would like to say to inspire the next generation of tennis players? I think no matter what you do, when it comes to tennis or or other areas in life, just just pursue it wholeheartedly and and do it your way. It's the most important thing. And uh, have fun while doing it. One, two, three. Stay Stay tipsy. tipsy. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. If you enjoyed it, that's what really matters at the end of the day. But 
you could do a huge favor for me and for Simon if you follow us on social media. His tag is Simon.Froin. That is for Instagram and for YouTube. And I am at Tipsy Tennis Podcast. You know where it is. Go on YouTube and check out my vlog of when I was in Stockholm. There's some clips of Simon and I hitting, uh, of, of him working out at the gym, and then a little bit of a ping pong shenanigans. So awesome video. Please check that one out as well. That'll be it for this episode of the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. To all of you out there, stay tipsy.